As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So, yes, we're continuing our journey exploring the concept of antitrust, both the lawsuits and the concept of the loss of trust that the Internet has helped breed in society. And today we're going to dive into a topic that spans both, actually, and that's privacy. Well, I just figured we didn't have any online. Yeah. Oh, we we don't. Um, (laughs) John Roberts, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, wrote this in a 2018 ruling that prevented the government from obtaining local location data from cell phone towers without a warrant. He said, when the government tracks the location of a cell phone, it achieves near perfect surveillance as if it had attached an ankle monitor to the phone's user. Ugh, that 
is not good. Yeah, and they're not the only entity that can achieve this. The NSO Group, for example, which is a shady Israeli company that sells spyware not only to governments, but to dictators and cartels alike through its software Pegasus. Now, I understand that dictators are governments, but their use of the software is closer to the cartels than any notion of keeping people safe. Okay, all of this is definitely sounding very heavy. But there are some positive aspects that we'll talk about as well. There are companies actively working to make it easier for us, the consumers, to control our data. And governments are not only enacting data privacy laws like GDPR, there's a growing movement around the actual ownership of our data and potentially taxing companies who use it and profit off of it, returning some of the proceeds back to the people. Okay, well, that is interesting. I'm excited to dive right in. All right, let's get started. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. All right. So honestly, where do we even start with this one? Well, usually the beginning is a good place to start. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's tackle how our data, unless our privacy, is being kind of used and traded first. And then we can discuss what governments are trying to do to help fix this problem, and even what some privately held companies are doing to help make it easier for adherence to guidelines like GDPR. Okay, so at least ending on a positive note, right? Yeah, absolutely. Got to have a little bit of hope right here. So um, the first and obvious breakdown of our privacy happens every day as we trade our personal data, as in web searches, our locations, our private conversations with friends and family, with companies like Google, Facebook, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft so that we can use their software and they can use our data to target us with advertising, use it to manipulate how we use those products or turn around and sell it to commercial data brokers who consolidate it and then redistribute it. Yeah. And this has gotten so good that many people are convinced that they're actually listening to our phones and then serving us ads based on our conversations. Oh, I mean, they they totally are. You know what, Michael? We might be on the same page. I kind of I kind of uh, believe that too, a little bit, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so l hear this out. Uh, just the other day, my wife was talking about this specific type of lighter that someone at a dispensary had convinced her she needed. It's called a raw lighter. And at the time, she pretended to know what they were talking about, and she ended up buying it. Okay, so so. When she finished telling the story, neither of us knew what a, a raw lighter was. So I picked up my phone to look up what a, a raw lighter was. Why was this thing so special? And as I opened my phone, the Instagram app was open because it was the last app I was I was using. The feed refreshes and I give it a quick scroll and lo and behold, there is an ad for raw lighters. Yeah. See, that's just weird, isn't it? Yeah. No, it's it's. Totally weird. Um, I mean, there are other potential explanations, like the credit card transaction could have been sold by the third-party software that facilitated the transaction to a commercial broker, and Facebook took that transaction data and added it to Carmen's traits, and then because I'm standing next to her, because we usually are tracked in the same general location – they decided which ad to serve me, assuming I would also be interested in this product. Okay. Well, that is possible. I mean, Facebook does have something like, what, 52,000 traits of each of its users? Yeah, and that's exactly how Cambridge Analytica was able to build comprehensive psychological profiles of voters and actually sell it to the Trump campaign during the 2016 election. Here's actual whistleblower Christopher Wiley, who 
built the data engine that powered Cambridge Analytica on the system they built and sold to customers looking to influence the outcome of elections. Essentially, the pitch was that we were going to combine micro-targeting, which had existed in politics, which was, you know, in part my background, but bring bring on boards um, a new a new construct new constructs from psychology, so that we wouldn't just be targeting you as a voter. We'd be targeting you as a personality, and in order to scale that, we would then be collecting a lot of data on people, um, so that we could build a psychological profile of each voter in a particular region, or in this case. All of the United States. So I remember when this broke, Steve Mercer, that billionaire hedge fund executive, he loved this idea and he invested millions into Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, which apparently Steve Bannon had a heavy hand in naming. Huh, I did not know that. Okay, so once this investment happened, Christopher Wiley needed to figure out where to get access to massive amounts of data on citizens in the United States. So he met Christopher Kogan, who had built apps on Facebook. What Kogan offered us was something that was way cheaper, way faster, and of a quality that nothing matched. They had uh, apps on Facebook that were given special permission to harvest data, not from just the person who used the app or joined the app, but also it would then go into their entire friend network and pull out all of the friends' data as well. So if, if one person, if you joined the app, I would not just see your Facebook profile. I would see all of the Facebook profiles of everybody that you're friends with. We would only need to, to, to you know, touch a couple hundred thousand people to expand into their entire social network, which would then scale us to you know, most of America. And people had no idea that the data was being taken in this way. No, if you were a friend of somebody who used the app, you would have no idea that I've just pulled all of your data. So you've heard this saying, data is the new oil, which compares the value of this data to the value of oil. But there's another way that they're similar. What's that? Well, once they spill, it's nearly impossible to put them back. Like Facebook can't go into Cambridge Analytica's database and just delete all the data they allowed them to pull on us. Yeah, absolutely true. So, okay, back to the story. It was almost everything that would be on a on a Facebook profile. So that was things like status updates, likes, in some cases, private messages. Um, so Cambridge Analytica has people's private messages they sent on Facebook. I can't say whether they did or not. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is what the app could do. Ugh, that is bad. Yeah, and it gets worse. So we would know we would know what kinds of messaging you would be susceptible to, including the framing of it, the topics, the contents, the tone, whether it's scary or not, that kind of thing. So what you would be susceptible to and and where you're going to consume that. And then how many times do we need to touch you with that in order to change how you how you think about something? In addition to having, you know, data scientists and psychologists and strategists, they also have an entire team of, you know, creatives, designers, videographers, photographers. They then create that content. That gets then sent to a targeting team, which then, you know, injects it into the internet. Websites will be created, blogs will be created, whatever it is that we think this 
target profile will be receptive to. We will create content on the internet for them to find. And then they see that and they click it and they go down the rabbit hole um, until they start to think that, you know, something, until they start to think something differently. But if we're being honest, this is nothing compared to what Facebook can do with the multitudes of data that it's already collected, bought, and compiled on billions of people around the world. Cambridge Analytica took the fall here, but Facebook uses its data in very much the same way. And these algorithms, the same that drive platforms like YouTube, that have proven to expose visitors to more extreme content over time in order to keep their attention on the site. This is why Facebook's top posts every day are from cesspool content creators like Dan Bongino and Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens. These people have figured out that if they just keep saying more and more extreme things, algorithms will reward them with eyeballs and attention. And according to internal documents recently released, Mark Zuckerberg hasn't been concerned at all with the side of Facebook, most likely because it's highly profitable. But honestly, he should be. And this is all made possible because we freely give away all of our data to those companies who are able to build detailed psychological models designed to capture more and more of our attention. And the best way to do that is through outrage. Now, Zuckerberg actually did publicly apologize. Yeah, but I, I don't think there was too much weight to that apology, especially given the internal documents that you just mentioned that leaked this week. Honestly, I've lost trust in him and Sheryl Sandberg to do anything to solve these problems that they've really helped to proliferate. It's only when it hits their bottom line do they take any action at all. Okay, well, why don't we take a quick break here and we'll be right back with more. So before the break, we were discussing how data is being used against us to enrage us, to target us with advertising and to manipulate our view of the world. But there are people working to make the internet a fairer place for consumers. In April 2016, the European Parliament adopted the GDPR or General Data Protection Regulation, which replaced its outdated Data Protection Directive enacted back in 1995. GDPR comprises of 99 articles setting out the rights of individuals and obligations placed on businesses that are subject to the regulation. GDPR's provisions also require that any personal data exported outside the EU is protected and regulated. In other words, if any European citizen's data is touched, you better be compliant with GDPR. For example, a US airline is selling services to someone out of the UK. Although the airline is located in the US, they are still required to comply with GDPR because of the European data being involved. Yeah, or say a conference like industry happening in the US, <laughs> but gets people from all over the world. We definitely have to be compliant too. And, and we are, we are. Um, but it's a very high standard to meet, requiring that companies invest large amounts of money to ensure that they are in compliance. According to the EU's GDPR website, the legislation is designed to harmonize data privacy laws across Europe, providing greater protection and rights to individuals. Here's an overview from Channel 4 News from 2018. Let's talk data, your data in particular. All those emails from companies desperate for you to stay on their mailing lists, that's not some weird PR strategy. It's all because of a massive change in EU data protection rules, which kick in soon. The General Data Protection Regulation, which is way too long, so let's just say GDPR instead. So what's the reason for these new laws? Today, nearly every part of your life can be digitised, tracked and logged. Every picture, every journey, every purchase, even every heartbeat. More and more of your personal information is collected, stored and traded by companies and governments. 
The new GDPR regulations cover things that could identify us. So your name, contact details, the location of your computer and personal data, like race and sexual orientation. From now on, organisations will have to prove they have a lawful reason for holding that kind of data, and even more importantly, show that they're keeping it safe. And most importantly, GDPR gives consumers the right to demand that a company send over all of the data that they've collected on them, and even demand that they delete it from their system altogether in its entirety, leaving no trail. This was a huge step forward. I remember when we at Dribble had to scramble to put the pieces in place so that we could be compliant when the law fully went into effect. Because all of a sudden, people could write in, demand all of their data, and also demand that we delete it all, something that we weren't necessarily set up to provide until the EU demanded it through GDPR. Now we have regulations in Canada and California that are also pushing to give consumers these same protections. Which is a big step in the right direction. Now, another movement that has been brewing is the idea of data taxation. As we've discussed today, our data is valuable. Each year it generates hundreds of billions of dollars worth of economic activity mostly between and within corporations, all on the back of information about each of us. It's this transaction between you, the user, giving up the details of yourself to a company in exchange for a product, like a photo app or email, or the whole ecosystem of Facebook, that's worth, by some estimates, $1,000 per person per year, and that number's actually quickly rising. The value of our personal data is primarily locked up in the revenues of large corporations, and as we discussed, data brokerages even exist solely to buy and sell sets of that data. As a new way of generating revenues and as a way of leveling the playing field for the free use of our data, some governments have been considering a data tax. Now, it's essentially a sales tax, but it hasn't been done because assigning a fixed monetary value to our data can be very difficult. For a lot of internet businesses, our personal data either primarily flows through the business or remains locked within. When you use the internet, your information travels through providers' pipes, like think of them like roads, right? And in and out of platform makers' servers, which kind of serve like parking lots. Now, Google uses its immense trove of real human searches to make better artificial intelligence, like transcription translations and self-driving cars, on top of its already lucrative advertising products. And then there are the data brokers. It's the data brokerage industry that should be the primary initial focus of the data tax. This industry exists solely to collect our information and sell it as a commodity to retailers, advertisers, marketers, even other data brokerages and government agencies. It's this marketplace that traffics in the actual monetary value of our data. And from it, we can begin to map just how much that data might be worth overall. The data brokerage industry generates more than $150 billion in real revenue every year. A small tax, say 0.8% on data brokerages based in the United States, would generate about $2 billion annually. Our data is technically ours, but it's also not ours. We traded it away for so much of our experience online. And money from a data tax could begin to counter this trade imbalance. And while that might sound like pie in the sky, governments are starting to take ideas like this more seriously. In fact, in Canada, where you are, Michael, the Liberals, a political party that actually exists in Canada, they've already expressed their interest in introducing a 3% tax on the advertising and user data revenues of global tech giants such as Facebook, Amazon, 
and Alphabet's Google during the election in September. That's right. They haven't acted on it, but it was a key part of the platform they ran on for re-election this year, and they won re-election. So there's a chance that we could see a bill like this being introduced in the near future. Now, in the United States, while not a data tax, there is some movement on data portability through the Access Act, which is a bill from Representative Mary Gay Scanlon, a Democrat from Pennsylvania and co-sponsored by Representative Burgess Owens, a Republican from Utah, that would mandate dominant platforms maintain certain standards of data portability and interoperability, making it easier for consumers to take their data with them to other platforms. But to achieve any of this, companies are going to need better internal tooling to control their data. That and more after a quick break. So before the break, we were discussing some of the government actions to try to either tax or control how companies can use our data. But in order for this work to be effective, especially in the data control and ownership world, companies need to improve their internal tooling for how they interact with and store private user records. And here birthed a whole new industry. And I don't even think it has a name yet, like data privacy enablement, like DPE. Mm, I don't think that actually rings, Michael. No, no, you're right. But... <laughs> I did catch up with Ben Brooks, the co-founder of Transcend.io, who is actively trying to solve this problem. Here's Ben. Ultimately, it's fun out of just something that we personally believed in. We, th we thought data rights uh, were a no-brainer and something that like was the only way to sort of rebalance this imbalance between cor cor corporations and consumers, um, where consumers are really have historically been totally out of control uh, on uh, whether they're being recorded and for what purposes. Interesting. So they're trying to fight this issue by providing a better infrastructure so teams can actually be compliant. Right. It it takes away at least one excuse as to why companies aren't doing what they should be doing. So we're in the very early innings today. We see that we see all of the right signs where uh, regulators have stepped in. They've realized that this is not going to solve itself. And they're actually giving... Uh, giving consumers these universal data rights, the right to access their data, the right to delete their data, uh, the right to opt out of various things, or even by default be opted out of all things unless they provide consent in Europe. And so these are really, really great foundations and you need a right to build, like there needs to be rights that you build upon. Um, the big gap though is in implementation. And so uh, for most consumers, they have no idea how they can exercise these rights in a way that is uh, hopefully efficient and hopefully it's scalable such that you could actually exercise these rights across uh, more than, you know, five companies in a year, right? Like it, you should be able to actually exercise these rights efficiently as a consumer and you should know how. And that's a huge gap today. Um, another area where there's a huge gap is on consent where, uh, we have dark patterns abound uh, that are basically just pop-ups that block your usage of the site until you click the big fat I accept button. Um, even though legally you have the right to say, I don't accept, but, uh, and legally that's technically supposed to be as easy as accepting, but we all know it's not. Okay. So where did they start? So when we realized that we were probably at the, the dawn of privacy, uh, in the modern age, we would we, we we just went into the market and thought, how can we actually help make this real? And we went back to a lot of these companies that we initially had asked for our data from, 
and said, like, why, why can't you do this? And why, why is it hard? What scares you about this law? And universally, it was like, if we actually have to do this under GDPR and give people access to their data or delete their data, it's going to be a nightmare. We have data systems in the thousands, and we've been pouring data in, into these systems without any knowledge of really what's going where for like decades. <laughs> and so the prospect of actually going and like inverting that flow is, is essentially impossible. And so what we realized was uh, the laws aren't enough. What you need is like modern data infrastructure to account for these new requirements, these new flows of information where uh, we, there has to be something that can sit over top of all these systems and delete one person. Uh, like right when they ask for it. And so we realized ultimately that privacy was about to become an infrastructure problem for the first time and not just a disclosure problem where historically it was, uh, make sure you include that in your privacy policy. But now it's, okay, we have to actually govern data across all of our data systems, all of our vendors, everyone we've ever sent data to, we have to coordinate with now. And so that's a huge infrastructure problem. And we realized that Nobody's going to get their rights until this infrastructure problem gets fixed. And so there, and thus we set out to build data, data privacy infrastructure. And they're building for a future that they see us moving towards. And there's actually some hope in this vision. I think in the future, what, what seems very clear to me is that control is skewing back toward the consumer, where uh, the consumer, if the data pertains to the consumer, they actually have a lot of rights over what happens with that data. And so um, in both Europe and California, Brazil, and many regions globally, um, users have pretty much total control over what, whether that data exists in the first place and whether that data can be used for any purpose other than the like specific service that they agreed to. And, uh, and that basically means that sale of personal information is outside of that. And so in Europe, uh, a company would have to ask permission to be able to sell that data or, or otherwise have some material exchange. Um, in California, we have a specific opt-out right for the sale of personal information. We can tell any company, do not sell my personal information. And they can't, they can't hand it out for cash and they can't uh, put it into an ad network. Um, and so I think the future is, pretty apparent here where every modern privacy law has some coverage over the sale of personal information. Um, on ownership, I think, I think in reality, it's a little bit more shared between businesses and companies where if historically businesses had 100% pure ownership, it's probably more like uh, businesses have like 60% ownership now and consumers have 40% in that they have like a few sort of like vetoes, right? Where they can say like, I veto, like get rid of my data, like altogether. But that doesn't necessarily mean the business can't like do what they do across all data. It's like, it's not necessarily going to fundamentally kill the business model. It just means that certain consumers, they have to be able to account for certain consumers vetoing on their data. I mean, I don't hate it. It's a better world than what we live in today. Yeah, and it's a relief to know that companies like Transcend.io are on a mission to help us live in this new world. Shoot, I 
think we're actually out of time today. I know I've got a meeting coming up, but anyway, a huge thanks to Ben Brooks of Transcend.io for giving us a little hope at the end of this episode. We definitely needed it. Overall, it does feel like companies have too much power over our data and are hyper-focused on monetizing every bit of information they're able to collect about us. Yeah, I do think it's time these practices are reined in. I mean, GDPR is a great start, but we need more expansive protections that give us finer control of how our data is used, how long it's stored for, and how it could be shared with third-party companies. General opt-ins, they're not really good enough anymore. We shouldn't be giving companies blanket rights to sell our data to anyone who wants it without our express permission. And I'm thankful that services like Transcend might actually help us do that one day. All right, we will be right back next week with more from season 11 of Rocketship.fm Antitrust, where we'll explore where tech has broken down the trust within our systems, culture, and society. For Mike Belsito, I'm Michael Saka, and this is Rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.